Worship leaders, worship musicians, and those who love to worship. What can we learn about leadership from the life of King David? Let's talk about it. Welcome to Blueprint Sounds. My name is Nathan Smith. Thanks for joining me. Today we're in part one of a multi-part series entitled Leadership Lessons from the Life of King David. We're going to look at how God prepared David to be king over all Israel. But before we get there, I want to give you something. If you have a song that you've been working on with your team that you wish could have another gear and be a little bit more interesting, go to my website, blueprintsounds.com, or click on the link nearby, blueprintsounds.com forward slash 25 tricks and you'll get my free PDF called 25 Chart Topping Arrangement Tricks. It has 25 great tricks that you can use to make your song more interesting. It gives you a couple of sentences as to why that trick works, and then it gives you a song from the radio so that you can hear that trick in action. Again, go to blueprintsounds.com or click on the link nearby. All right, with that, let's talk about the life of King David. Just a little bit of backstory before we read these two scriptures. So, David... And Goliath. We all know the story. David, as a boy, slays Goliath with a slingshot and instantly becomes uh, famous in all of Israel. Well, he goes to work in King Saul's house and grows in favor with everyone in Israel. You know, he goes out to battles and he wins them. He's, he's becoming a big deal. And Saul gets jealous, of course, of David. And so he tries to pin him against the wall with a spear and David escapes. Well, just after it's very clear to David that his life is in danger and that Saul is looking to hunt him down, we read this passage and we're in 1 Samuel chapter 22. So David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adalam. And when his brothers and all of his father's household heard of it, they went down there to him. Everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was discontented gathered to him, and he became captain over them. Now there were about 400 men with him. That's our first passage. Let's look at a couple of words in that passage. The first word, distress, all of the men who were in distress came to David. That word in Hebrew is matzok, which literally means in a narrow place or in anguish. Debt means just what you think it means. They all owed money. And then that word discontented is nefesh mar. Nefesh means breathing or a living creature. And mar means bitter, angry, heavy, or chafed. So all of the men who were in debt, all of the men who were in a narrow place, and all of the men who were bitter and heavy-breathed came to David. Not exactly the dream team. Let's get to another passage in 1 Chronicles. Now we're in 1 Chronicles chapter 12, and we're in verse 38. All of these, being men of war who could draw up in battle formation, came to Hebron with a perfect heart to make David king over all Israel. And all the rest also of Israel were of one mind to make David king. They were there with David three days, eating and drinking, for their kinsmen had prepared for them. Moreover, those who were near to them, even as far as Issachar and Zebulun and Naphtali, brought food on donkeys, camels, mules, and on oxen, great quantities of flour cakes, fig cakes, and bunches of raisins, wine, oil, oxen, and sheep. There was joy indeed in Israel. Now that is a fantastic passage. Earlier, there's a long list of all of the men who had come to make David king, thousands of them. And it says that they're all well supplied from all of the families around Israel, and there was great joy. Well, guess what? 
those original 400 men became the mighty men that, da- that helped David become king, right? All of the discontented and the bitter ones, those are all part of this amazing crowd that is there to help David become king of all of Israel. What happened in the interim? How did we go from one to the other? Well, that's what we're going to talk about. There are two principles that we're going to look at today that shows us how God prepared David to go from being the shepherd boy to becoming king over Israel. Remember that David was anointed by Samuel to be king, right? He had been chosen at a young age, but he wasn't ready for it. So what did God do to make him ready for it? Well, God didn't give him the kingdom on a silver platter. Principle number one is that God gave him resources. He gave him raw materials, and he expected David to refine them. Well, what were David's raw materials? A desert, uh, a bounty on his head from the king, and 400 men and their wives and their children, uh, all of whom were dependent upon him. Great. How is that a resource? How, How are those assets? Those seem like liabilities. Well, The first thing is that David couldn't become king by himself. He couldn't just go off into the desert, escape from Saul, and just wait three years or whatever until Saul finally died, and then pop back into town and say, hey, everybody, I'm anointed. It's time for me to be king. It wouldn't work like that. He needed a team to gain favor with the tribes around the area to actually become king. So he needed those men. But he didn't need them in their raw form, that's for sure. They were pretty useless at the beginning. They were scared to even go out into battle. And we'll talk about how God grew them in the next episode. But God gives these 400 men, this ragtag bunch of misfits to David and said, hey, these are the men, he didn't know this, but these are the men who are going to help you become king. They are going to be by your side and they're going to help you win battles but you're going to have to grow them. You're going to have to change the culture of these men to be one that can actually help you in your quest to become king. Yes, you're anointed, but no, you don't just get the keys to the city. Let me tell you a story from my own life that parallels that principle of God giving us raw materials, not giving us the finished product. So I got hired at an organization that had a couple worship teams that I was going to be in charge of. And I was not only in charge of the personnel, I was in charge of the gear, and I was in charge of the tech teams. And so when I first got there and I set up shop in my office and took a look at the resources that were around me, of course, I'm looking at the gear, I'm looking at the space, and I'm looking at the people. And one of the first things that I did was to go into the rooms and look at, okay, what am I in charge of now? And what's the situation? Well, unfortunately, there hadn't been a lot of leadership in the past. So the culture had become sort of a, sort of a boys club, sort of a free-for-all, not a lot of leadership in that way. That needed to change. But here's how I accidentally went about changing it. I didn't start with the people necessarily. Atmosphere is really important to me. I like to be in a space and I like to work in a space that's clean and that's well lit. I'm notorious in my family for always being the one turning lights on. So what I did was in my office and in the spaces that were my jurisdiction, I started sprucing them up. I had a little bit of a budget, so I bought new furniture. I, you know, spent my own money and went to IKEA and I I started getting more lights in there and I started putting more sound treatment up, taking out the garbage that had just accumulated that nobody had 
had thrown away. I started cleaning up everywhere I could and dusting. And I just wanted those places to feel nice and not feel like a college dorm room. Well, people started to notice. When people would come into my office, they'd say, oh, this is a cool space. And that felt nice. But the other thing that started to happen was that gave me some moral authority in a certain area. So I had just cleaned up a certain room when I would come in in the morning and somebody had been using it during the night and left a mess. Guess what? We had a talk. I talked with them and said, hey, that's not how we roll anymore, right? I am the one who cleaned all this up. We, we got it to this nice place where everybody can use it. Let's keep it that way. So that was my foot in the door to imposing my values into the community at large to say, hey, we're all going to respect this space. We're going to take care of it because now there's, some, there's a leader here and he cares about this. So now you need to care about this. You may not have cared about this before, but times have changed. And that allowed me to get my foot into the door, into culture, to start changing attitudes. It also allowed me to have some really good conversations. I would find that people would wander around the halls and make their way to my office, and they would plop down just to kind of get their breath because the places around my office could sometimes be chaotic and noisy. But when they came to my office, they were like, Ah, they relaxed, they let their guard down. And I had some really, really good conversations with people in leadership as a result of that. And that, again, helped me build a relationship and helped me change culture because I had taken care of that space. And it was, it was part of what I do. It's not just a soulish thing. I believe that it actually is part of what God has put inside me that I like atmosphere, but that I actually lead from that direction. Right? It, it's, it's not so noticeable. It's not the first thing that you think of. Like how in the world could cleaning your room be leadership? But it was. In my case, it absolutely was. But I had a raw material and those raw materials were, I have these spaces that are kind of run down and dingy, but I can make them into atmospheres that actually welcome people and that help them put aside their anxiety for a little bit and be nice places to be, and that allows me past some defenses. So that was my resource. Here's the second principle about leadership. If you're anointed and called to do something, right, you know that this is what God designed for you to do, well then get ready to build some skills that you didn't have before. Think about it. When David was a kid, he was a shepherd. So he was in charge of sheep, And he went out into the desert, and he knew how to take care of himself. He knew how to find water, he knew how to take care of his own sheep, and he even knew how to defend against, you know, wild beasts like bears and lions. And he was a pretty good shot with a slingshot. Well, that's cool that that actually became a resource that he could use in his fight against Goliath. But then look what happens. God sends him out into the desert, but he doesn't send him out with sheep. He sends him out with 400 men and their wives and their kids, suddenly the responsibility level has totally changed. And now David is taking care of things instead of sheep. He's taking care of people that can talk back to him. So his leadership has to step up a level. Plus, this was an uninhabited wasteland that David was taking his men through. 
There were people living there with flocks and herds. There were other tribes that he had to negotiate with and navigate. So David had become much more politically savvy and learned how to deal with different tribes around him because guess what? He was going to need their help later on. So he couldn't let his men just run amok and take whatever they wanted. They had to learn to be protectors of the areas that they stayed in because they were only there by the good graces of those people. David goes from being just a shepherd, now he has to gain political skills and more leadership skills and military skills all in the desert. That's his training ground. Let me share another story from my life that parallels David. Since I was a kid, I have played guitar and sang, right? I can lead worship by myself with a guitar, no problem. But now in this new position, leading these worship teams, I wasn't playing. They were playing. It wasn't about my success, it was about their success. So I had to get even better at explaining myself pretty quickly so that we could work through problems with songs and so that those leaders could lead their teams and sound good. So in rehearsal, we would do things like, okay, if there's a problem with the song, let's go down to just the kick drum and the bass. Let's see if that groove is working. All right, now let's lay the guitar over that, then the piano, then the violin. Now let's add the singers. That way, my teams got to hear how you build a sound. I had been doing that on my own, but now I had to teach them how to do that for themselves, even when I wasn't around. The other thing that I would do is, as they were rehearsing, I would have to hold in my head, okay, there are like five things that we could fix right now, but they can't do all of that. I need to give them two things that they can fix right now and that we can polish up. I'll grab the rest later. So I became legendary for after somebody would run a song, I would say two things and I would point out spots that needed work. We'd work on this. We'd work on that. We'd repeat that until it felt good. And then I would hand the song back over to them because I didn't want them always looking at me because I wasn't going to be on stage. They needed to look at each other. So I would hammer that eye contact. Look at your team. Watch your leader. Look at your drummer. Stay together, everybody. Because it wasn't about me, it was about them being a team on stage. Here's how I knew that I had been successful. I had stepped away from that position, but I found myself back in one of their rehearsals just at the tail end of it, and I heard the leaders using the same terminology that I had used with them. Then I knew. I had recreated my values and and the fundamentals of playing as a band I had instilled that so deeply in the leaders that they were doing it without me. And I was so proud in that moment to know that they caught it. The things that were important to me had become important to them, and they could work it out on their own without me. That is leadership. It takes time, but really what we're doing is modeling what we want to see in other people so that they can lead. And that's what David had to do. He modeled over and over again the right way to lead and imposed his values to the point where some of his men, not all, but some of his men caught it. And those became the mighty men that helped David become king. So let's recap. If you want to lead like King David, be ready for two things. God is going to give you raw materials. He's not going to give you the key to the city. Because guess what? You're probably not ready. He's going to give you raw materials that he expects you to develop, and that grows you, but it also makes you grow your environment. Whether your resources are time or space or money or people, God expects you to develop what he gave you. Principle number two, God is going to expect you 
to gain new skills and add to your game. Don't just think that you doing your thing harder or doubling down on it is going to work when you become a leader. Because guess what? Now it's about the team's success. It's not about your individual success. So be ready to learn some new stuff that you didn't know before. Hey, I hope that video helps you. There's so much to learn from David's time in the wilderness with his 400 men, but we'll get to more of that in the next episode. Again, if you want a free resource to help you arrange songs for your worship team, go to blueprintsounds.com forward slash 25 tricks. All right, until next week, God bless and goodbye.